Hi everyone and welcome to the Stoic Teacher podcast with me, Sam Ahmed, the Stoic Teacher. If it's your first time here, I'm a philosophy and theology graduate from the University of Cambridge and I now have the pleasure of teaching philosophy and religious studies in South London. Now today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by uh, Donald Robertson. I hope, Donald, you won't mind if I introduce you as the man who has changed my life more than any other man that's living. <laughs> and I'll explain a little bit, I'll qualify that in a moment, but Donald, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. I actually discovered your book in 2017, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. I'd, I'd gone from being a very poor child, a number of traumatic events in my childhood, never really having faced them, to somehow getting to Cambridge University from free school meals. And then, you know, I graduated from there and fallen into this rat race of competing with people almost. Mm. Into this mindset that you fall into where you're thinking about, you know, you start measuring success by external indicators. And I actually got to 23 stone. I was morbidly obese in 2017. I started to look into CBT, just like Mm -hmm. a self-CBT course. And in the intro, Mm -hmm. it said, the Stoics. And oh, cool. I, I remembered my professor at Cambridge, he, in, in, in an ethics course, he mentioned the Stoics just once when referring mm-hmm. to St. Augustine having responded to the death of his mother by showing no emotion whatsoever. Uh, so in my mind, the small s Stoic is the kind of ideal I had. So then I was really interested when I listened to the Good Fortune podcast by Matt Van Natter, and he said that your book, Stoicism and the mm-hmm. Art of Happiness was his recommendation and I read it and it changed my life. I lost a hundred pounds of weight in six months. And you know, I'd had yo-yoing before, but the philosophy of life that your book provided me with has literally inspired me to do what I'm doing now. So thank you. Well, that's great. Like, it's, it's quite an inspiring story. And it's good to hear that people, you know, are engaging with Stoicism. I discovered Stoicism, I think it was about 25 years ago or nearly 25 years ago now. And uh, I wasn't, you never really know how long you're going to stick with something. Before that, I'd been pretty fickle. I'd been into Buddhism and into Gnostic Christianity and stuff. And then I discovered Stoicism. 25 years later, I'm still into Stoicism. It hasn't kind of worn off yet. So uh, Stoicism seems to be sticky, as I, I like to say. Psychologists sometimes say, you know, people that discover Stoicism often stay with it permanently, which is actually very interesting. Like, because CBT techniques, they, they don't tend to. Um, they use the, the technique, learn them, and then often we find that they stop using them a year later or two years later. So it's actually incredibly valuable, but it, it, stoicism seems to be something that people can identify with. Mm. And I was really inspired, actually, after having read The Art of Happiness, when I started reading How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, you had some of your biographical stuff at the beginning in the introduction. Um, and I was really, really inspired by that as well actually um yeah as as a teacher as well it made me reflect quite a bit upon how stoicism could uh help but that's something we'll get onto a bit later on but just in terms of um you you, did you discover stoicism earlier on or was it when you went to the university of aberdeen or was it i'm only laughing because uh, my publisher made me write that really (laughs) it wasn't in the initial draft um, but I thought, okay, sure, I don't really mind, and then I, I, I wrote it. Um, some biographical stuff. When did I discover Stoicism? Um, I mean, it, honestly, I, I, my father was a Freemason, and then he passed away when I was about 13, and he left some of his books behind, and I read those, and that got me kind of trying to figure out all this weird kind of esoteric Christian stuff, and then somehow I started studying the Bible and other religions, and I stumbled across the Gnostics. 
I started to read the Gnostic. And a lot of the Gnostic literature is steeped in Neoplatonism. Here's a really weird bit of trivia for you. I love telling people this. Uh, in the 1940s, they found under a boulder in, in Egypt, this treasure trove of books called the Najkamadi Library. And it's a Gnostic Christian community had hidden their books. And one of their Bibles, they had a bound book, a codex, and they had these Hermetic and uh, Gnostic Christian Gospels. And alongside them, they had an excerpt from Plato's Republic. So in a parallel universe, like there's an alternate form of Christianity in which Socrates is a Christian uh, saint, and then Socrates is in the Bible. You know, like literally they had him in their Bible. Like, so I thought I, I need to learn about Plato and stuff. Then I went to Aberdeen and studied philosophy. And kind of a bit like you're saying, yeah, I like to tell people this as well. In undergraduate philosophy degrees, you don't normally study the Stoics. And the main reason that academics give is they say that the Stoics take concepts from Plato or Aristotle or whoever, and then they develop the practical psychological implications of those ideas. But they didn't really introduce that many original theoretical concepts of their own. And so the academics will often say, well, then what's the point in studying them? Like, now, the reason that they discard the Stoics is precisely the reason that everyone else is so interested in studying them. Because they think, we kind of like the idea of knowing all the practical psychological implications of these uh, ancient philosophies. That, that, that's the juicy part. Like, so it wasn't until after I graduated that I, I, then I returned to reading the Gnostics and Neoplatonism. And I read Pierre Hadot's book on Plotinus. And then I read uh, Hado's other books, and he talks a lot about the Stoics. And I suddenly went, boom, these guys are talking. <laughs> these guys invented CBT, and they, they're, they're, you know, indirectly. And they're, they're talking about all these meditation techniques or visualization exercises, however you want to describe them. Hado calls them spiritual exercises. And I thought, this is it. This is the thing that I've been looking for. Um, but it wasn't until after I finished my philosophy degree, uh, I suddenly realized it was the one major school of philosophy that we hadn't really touched on. I'd studied Plato and Aristotle, so I had studied some ancient Greek philosophy. Um, but it was the one, it's the one, it's what is the expression in the Bible, it's the cornerstone that, like the one stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Mm. It's the very thing that, you know, for precisely those reasons that they overlooked it, it suddenly became very relevant to me. And then uh, it's remained with me ever since. I thought, yeah, this turns out this was the right thing to focus on. So it's so interesting, isn't it? And, and, and on stoicism and CBT and cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, what, what I try and do a lot on this channel is reach out to those people who wouldn't necessarily have come across stoicism otherwise. Um, but, that, but clearly in the time that we're in, mm -hmm. this is something that's really resonating with people. But the answer sometimes that I get when I talk about a philosophy from 2000 years ago is the uh -huh. same kind of mindset you get when you talk about, say, Eastern philosophy, the kind of Orientalist view uh -huh. most of what do they know about, you know, our modern world with its, yeah. you know, with our empirical knowledge and our advances. Um, so it's interesting yeah. to me um, that the approach of CBT, which is highly credited and, and, and you know, viewed as one of the, the foremost ways of dealing with depression and anxiety, is actually mm -hmm. um, underpinned by stoicism i mean to, yeah. to the lay person um what would you say what how would you respond to those people that say well actually you know the, these philosophers can't be up to date with our modern advances well they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the reason that the stoics are still relevant today is a bit odd in a way isn't it you know why normally in the sciences there's progress 
and uh, and then philosophy you do have this paradox there is progress in philosophy but not in the same way strangely um now the central premise the central psychological premise of stoicism is that it's not things that upset us but our opinions about them and that is the same basically uh, and it's pretty much the same as the central premise of cognitive therapy it's called the cognitive theory of emotion and you know if you if you focus on that aspect of stoicism those are the bits of stoicism that are dated perhaps uh but you know we don't worship zeus anymore and stuff we don't most people don't anyway but they so the central psychological premise uh of stoicism is it's not events that upset us but our opinions about them and that inspired cognitive therapy and cognitive therapy we call it the cognitive theory of emotion so it's the idea our emotions are, are largely determined by underlying corresponding beliefs and uh you know so that's why stoicism and cbt have got a lot in common and that simple insight if you focus on that you know it, it's obvious that that would still potentially be relevant today that insight doesn't really age it's kind of perennial wisdom it's going to apply whichever era or culture you live in you know it's because it's so it's such a fundamental truth um so that's why it hasn't really dated and then you know the big mystery in a way is you know like given that that seems like something that's almost self-evidently true how is it that psychotherapy for nearly 100 years um ignored that largely and you know like freud had didn't have this concept and that was a he was a big deal like and his followers dominated psychotherapy for half a century um and uh you know 2000 years earlier the stoics had been saying you know it's basically your beliefs that are making you anxious and stuff right like freud and his followers are like no nah, it's repressed castration anxiety like, <laughs> it's because you want to sleep with your mom it's more complicated than that we need to analyze your dreams and stuff like and then the cognitive therapists came along with albert ellis and went, like do you know like maybe they had a point you know maybe it is kind of just your beliefs and stuff largely and and if you change those often your anxieties will change and your mood will change and they validated it by research but the really so the really weird thing is you, in a way it's a self-evident truth that if you think something really bad is going to happen you're probably going to feel anxious even if you might be wrong about that you might be mistaken about it it's it's almost it seems kind of patronizing to explain that to people but you know for half a century psychotherapists seem to be largely oblivious to this idea and we're we're looking in completely the wrong direction like and you know it took us a while to to rediscover what seems like a mystery in broad daylight <laughs> yeah i think that that was really powerful for me because when i first discovered uh cbt things like um thinking errors catastrophizing mm. black and white thinking um these were things that made me reflect upon how i was responding to situations but then like you say it didn't feel as sticky as when i discovered stoicism uh, because that gives you an underpinning kind of philosophy of life as it were yeah it's weird because see you know cbt took this thing that was a whole philosophy of life this is here's another like thing that just seems stupid when you say it out loud right so cbt came along and he said we've got this thing that's a whole philosophy of life let's just take bits of it and make it time limited and diagnosis driven right and then and then so you do it for a while and then you 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 stop doing it like we we're not intending it to be a philosophy of life anymore and then they went oh geez how could we do this preventatively so that we build lasting psychological resilience mm. like if only we, there was a way that we could do that like you know like oh, a couple of decades earlier we because we we removed all of that stuff like and then we forgot how to put it back in again 
you know so cbt is is meant to be time limited you do it for a couple of months or whatever and then the idea is you know you you do some things to maintain it but largely you do it and then stop doing it it's an intervention mm. it's not it's not conceived of as a philosophy of life but you know we want something that's permanent in therapy because if we want to prevent prevention is better than cure so get again a, a no-brainer well if you're going to prevent psychological problems if you're going to make people generally more resilient then you need to do something that changes their character traits permanently so then you're back to having something more like a philosophy of life i I'm, i'll tell you a really interesting question right that's vexed me and i've never had a chance to properly sit down and write an article about this or something right maybe somebody else will so suppose you just approached this very naively and you looked at cbt and you just pulled out one or two basic ideas from cbt and you thought suppose we take cbt seriously and we we assume that it, it's not just meant to be for treating symptoms but the the truths the principles in cbt are generally applicable what would a philosophy of life built upon cbt look like is the is the quest is the trick question right i mean i feel like it would probably look quite a lot like stoicism anyway you know like we just revert back to what we we had before cbt but it's an interesting question what would happen if you took the basic principles like the most concrete principles of cbt and develop them into a general philosophy of life would it just turn into stoicism or something similar you know i've never really explored that but you know it's an interesting question eh? And I think that question is probably more pertinent now in our generation than it has been for quite some time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we've been hit by what many of my university professors would describe as a category collapse, probably for the first time in our, you know, in our, in our generation with the global COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, I, I know for mm -hmm. one that I've seen, you know, a, a, a swathe of visitors to, to my page now looking for answers as it were uh, about resilience i mean how how have you found how have you, have you have you found something similar yeah 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 everybody's suddenly really interested in it so you know for you the stoics were saying it might be a good idea to psychologically prepare in advance for catastrophes like, why would we need to do that that's a crazy idea and then uh, suddenly they're like oh, maybe we should listen to them actually after all but um, so, you know, like the pandemic, you know, or as I like to describe it, this thing that people have been telling us is probably going to happen for ages, right? Like everyone said, eventually there's going to be a viral pandemic. You know, everyone's seen that TED talk that Bill Gates did where he was talking about we need to prepare for it. Like, so everyone just ignored that as well. Like, so this big surprise event that, that was kind of obviously going to happen sooner or later. They, we're incredibly lucky that this is a rel the fatality rate of this virus is so low. Like it's you know it's pretty nasty, but we're really lucky it's not something much much worse. Ebola has a fifty percent fatality rate. You know, so you could say uh, there are positive aspects to this, like in the sense that if we weren't hit with the coronavirus, we could have been hit with something with a much higher fatality rate. So at least coming out of this you know probably we're going to be motivated to be better prepared for future possibly far more life-threatening uh, pandemics that we're going to have to we're probably, there's another shocker you know there's probably going to be other ones like you know it's not it's not the only one that's ever going to happen like if you look at human history and a good example would be the stoics marcus aurelius lived through a much worse pandemic the antonine plague uh, we don't know exactly what it was or how many people it killed, but we think it might have been smallpox or something like that. 
and it, we think it killed up to fifth, like about up to about five million people throughout the the known world. It was, it was pretty serious, much more severe than the, the pandemic we're facing at the moment. And throughout history, we've had these things like Spanish flu, for example. So the Stoics would say to us that the wise man never acts. So the wise man never says, "I can't believe this is happening," because that would seem ridiculous to him. You know, say, "Well, yeah, like, of course." like diseases happen it's part of life and the stoics tell us particularly seneca every day to imagine you know you could get hit by a bus tomorrow imagine losing your job imagine your partner breaking up with you like imagine people blaming you for things that you didn't do like you know imagine poverty imagine exile imagine death you know all things that potentially happen to you so that you never find yourself in a situation going oh my god i can't believe this is happening um, because anything like this you could potentially anticipate in, in, in the general sense. Like, you know, it's not it's not a huge shocker that there's a pandemic happening. Like, they happen periodically. And, uh, you know, so being prepared for these kind of things happening is very important. Uh, being prepared for setbacks in life in general is really what the, the Stoics want to teach us. I'll tell you what I like to say to people. And this is a slight exaggeration, but I like to say it anyway, just to make a kind of rhetorical point. You could say that the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which is one of the most widely read self-help classics in European history, uh, is essentially uh, a training manual for developing precisely the kind of psychological resilience skills required to survive a pandemic, because he wrote it in order to help himself cope psychologically with a pandemic. Like, he was in the middle of one when he, he was writing it, and it was a, it ran the whole course of the, the period while he was writing that book. He was dealing with other things. He was dealing with a war as well, um, and a, a lot of other issues. In fact, he only ever mentions the pandemic once in the meditations. But many of the other things he's saying, if you imagine the context in which he's writing, a lot of the techniques he's using must have been applied by him to the, the the stress and the challenges that he was facing as a result of the Antonine Plague. So you could say, the, look, the meditations, if only there was some kind of guidebook as to how to cope with a situation like this. Like, well, the meditations is literally Marcus Aurelius talking himself through the process of coping with a pandemic. Yeah, so I, I was, <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, I was going to say, you know, what would the stoic advice be on coping with this but i think you pretty much said it read, read the meditations 